Turn to Romans 11, please. Romans chapter 11. If you remember the first week of this class on the Reformation, uh, we, we look in some detail at what's called the five solas of the Reformation. And if you've, if, if you've taken notice, we've uh, been moving through them sequentially uh, in real time, as it were, in the events of the Reformation, uh, starting with Lefebvre and Farrell, moving through Zwingli and Melanchthon, and then into Luther. Um, we dealt with sola fide, solus Christus, with Luther quite a bit. Uh, the last two weeks with Luther, we looked at the development in, in his own struggle with the papacy uh, of the doctrine of sola scriptura. And this morning we're going to come and we're going to look in some depth at uh, the doctrine of sola gratia, or grace alone, which in effect covers all of the solas, really, the last one being soli deo gloria, that is, all of these combined are to the glory of God alone. We're thinking of, of giving, giving its rightful place to God's works, as Calvin had said, uh, which we quoted from him in the first week, giving, giving their rightful place, God's works, not usurping them, if you like, uh, from the perspective of the creature. So we were looking at the solas. We're going to come to sola gratia this morning. Last week, uh, we ended with Luther's return to Wittenberg. I want to make just a comment or two on the principle that was involved there as compared to the principle at the Diet of Worms, where he took his, his conscientious stand. But uh, in keeping with the theme this morning of sola gratia, we want to read just a few verses out of the very end of Romans 11, which is, the, which is really the zenith of what Paul, in all of his theology, has been leading to, and that is this great doxology, which can be summed up in that Latin term, sola gratia, grace alone, divine grace alone. So let's begin in verse 32 of Romans 11, and we'll just read to the end of the chapter, which is verse 36, the brief passage, but one of the crowning jewels of the entire scripture. So this is what Paul says, for God has concluded them all, that is, Jew and Gentile, all all men, in other words, universally. God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for your Spirit, who, through Christ, has been sent into our hearts that we might have the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray and ask for your presence with us now. Amen. 
All right, so we ended last week. We talked a good bit about Zwingli, if you recall, and his, his uh, work in the ministry in Zurich, Switzerland. And then we ended with coming back to Luther and his, his, his hasty departure from the castle in Wartburg, where he had been, in effect, hiding out from the forces, combined forces of pope and emperor. He was an outlaw and a heretic. Uh, but matters in Wittenberg pressed him so severely that he left that refuge and entered Wittenberg, if you recall, uh, primarily because of the agitation that was being stirred up by, by uh, his colleague at the university, Karl Karlstadt, uh, Andreas Karlstadt, and the Zwickau prophets from the neighboring town of Zwickau, who were basically uh, iconoclasts, they, they had so taken to Luther's doctrine of the priesthood of all believers on the one hand and the, uh, the evils of the papacy that they wanted to tear it all down in a single day, uh, to, to quote Karlstadt. And uh, so they were extremists, and they began breaking down altars and, and break, throwing stones through the windows of the Wittenberg Chapel, uh, tearing down statues, all of which Luther would have condemned in principle but stopped far short of actually taking violent action in this way. Uh, he hearkened back to the example, if you remember, of Paul at Athens, and we quoted from him at length in his sermon to the people, which, which quelled the, the violence and the things calmed down in Wittenberg. I just wanted to make one observation, uh, comparing this with Wittenberg, where he was dealing on the, on the one hand with the, the, the ultra-conservative forces, if you will, of the papacy, and here, the radical leftist uh, agenda of the Zwickau prophets. The, the circumstances, of course, were like on opposite ends of the spectrum. But in principle, the exact same issue was at stake. At, at uh, Worms, you had men who were canceling, if you will, the word of God, uh, based on the pretended inspiration of popes and councils. So they were hearkening, claiming inspiration for popes and councils and thereby canceling out the word of God. In Wittenberg, you had men who were doing the same thing. They were canceling the word of God by the inspiration of a pretended spirit. So both were claiming an inspiration of sorts that trumped the actual scripture, the word of God, sola scriptura. Uh, they claimed inspiration above and superior to that, or at least at an equal level by which they could control and interpret it, which in effect is to put it above it. So in both cases, even though the, the circumstances were different, the principle, the error was exactly the same. That is, making void, to use Jesus' words in the gospel, making void the word of God by the traditions of men. Whether in one case it was old-fashioned traditions or in the case of the other newfangled traditions. In either case, it was... The, the, the custom that was designed and invented by men. Now, the principle Luther applied, uh, you might think in a way he's being inconsistent or, or contradicting himself, but the principle is exactly the same, and that is that the word of God, uh, or I should say rather the word of men, must always and utterly and immediately give way to the word of God. That's the, that was the principle, that was the doctrine that was at stake. So I just, I just wanted to make that observation. Uh, you probably made it on your own. Uh, we just simply ran out of time last week, and, and uh, 
I had to just quit the narrative right away and dismiss because we were starting to run over time. Well, let's move on from there then. Uh, meanwhile, back in France, you remember last week, uh, we did touch on the situation in Paris where Lefebvre and Farrell were at the University of Paris. The persecution uh, ever since April of 1521 at the Diet of Worms, uh, since, since that mandate was hand, handed down against Luther, uh, the Sorbonne, that is the theological school or college at the University of Paris, was, began to crack down on the doctrines of Luther and those that held and promulgated them. And so Lefebvre and Farrell were forced to flee Paris, and they went to Meaux, a little town to the east of Paris, and they stayed there for, for some time. Uh, but the persecution was increasing, and the circle of, of that persecution was increasing, until finally it engulfed Mo, and uh, the, the, the evangelicals that had fled there, out of, fled there out of Paris and other places now were forced to, to disperse, and to break up and disperse. And they all went in different directions. It reminds you of certain passages early on in the book of Acts, how that the persecution uh, of which Saul, later Paul, was, a, was, a, was a, a major figure in, how that persecution dispersed the disciples and the gospel went all over. It's exactly the same principle that's beginning to happen now. So the gospel is beginning to spread by word and through the scripture. Well, 1523, the circle at Mo dispersed. Uh, 1523 is also a date to remember because now we're, we're, we're in the next few weeks we're coming into closer proximity to, to John Calvin and we're going to look at him in length and spend a couple, two, three weeks on Calvin and that will actually end the class. Calvin at this time in 1523 as, as the uh, persecution was spreading out of Paris and evangelicals were fleeing, fleeing Calvin was just entering Paris as a 14-year-old boy, entering the list at the university. So you have the evangelicals coming out and a, a thoroughly Catholicized young 14-year-old John Calvin coming in to imbibe all of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. So it's an interesting uh, dynamic that was going on here. But we want to keep Calvin in mind as we'll be coming to him very soon. Well, Farrell... Uh, among others, decided to leave first for southern France. He, he went down to southern France, and uh, then shortly thereafter, he crossed the border into Switzerland, and he went up to Basel in Switzerland, which is just about 50 miles to the west of Zurich. So he had Zwingli in Zurich, and then 50 miles to the west is Basel. Basel was a great city. It was right on the, if you can picture uh, the map of Europe, which, if you're like me, is very vague until you actually look at it, and then you go, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. Well, the, the, the three countries of France in the east, no, west, and then you had Germany on, uh, to its right or to its east, and then you had Switzerland, which joined the two kind of in the southern and eastern side there. That's how you have it, right where the three countries meet, is precisely where Basel was, in the very tip of Switzerland. So it was kind of cosmopolitan city. Uh, you, had, you, you, you had French speakers, you had German speakers uh, there. 
and which which is actually the two languages primarily that, that that you had in Switzerland. Zurich, they spoke German mainly. Down in Geneva, it was mainly France, where we were going to come to, to Calvin and and uh, and Farrell. So uh, that was Basel. It was known as the Athens of Switzerland. It was also the home of Desiderius Erasmus, who we're going to be uh, dealing with in just a few minutes. Erasmus lived there and was quite the celebrity. He was an international celebrity. You remember, uh, he had not only written books like uh, The Praise of Folly and other books that made him famous among the humanists and the evangelicals, uh, but in 1516 he had published that Novum Instrumentum, which was truly instrumental in, in publishing the gospel, primarily among the reformers who translated it then into their native languages and gave it to them to their people. Well, when Farrell came in early 1524 to Basel, he was coming with a lot of other French refugees that were streaming out of France because of the persecution. He was just one of them. Well, Farrell was warmly received there in Basel by the new cathedral preacher, whose name was Johann Echolampadius. Uh, you may remember him from when we were, were looking at the early life of Melanchthon when he was at the University of Tübingen. Uh, he and Echolampadius, who was also there in Tübingen, became very fast friends. Well, they parted ways. Uh, Echolampadius ended up in Basel working with uh, Erasmus on that 1516 Novum Instrumentum. He was a Hebrew and a Greek scholar. Echolampadius was a very intelligent man. So he and Erasmus, through their work together, had become very good friends. So they were both in Basel when, when uh, Farrell arrived. Now, in Basel's great cathedral church, Echolampadius was, as I said, the new preacher. He was preaching there week after week uh, in an expository manner, just like Zwingli had done. And his preaching was very popular. So in Basel, you had a similar situation as you had in Zurich, 50 miles to its east. Uh, Zwingli in Zurich, Echolampadius in Basel. And then, of course, you had Luther up in Wittenberg. So these are now three great center cities of Reformation influence. Well, Erasmus at this time, in reference to Echolampadius, wrote to Zwingli, in fact, and said, Echolampadius is reigning among us. It was just a wonderful, wonderful atmosphere under Echolampadius' preaching. Well, Farrell arrived, as I said, in early 1524, and was befriended by Echolampadius. The two men, Echolampadius and Farrell, were two preachers with a stark contrast of personalities. Uh, Schaff, Philip Schaff, the church historian, says of Echolampadius, he was a modest and humble man of a delicate constitution and ascetic habits and looked like a church father. He was inferior to Zwingli in originality, boldness, and energy, but superior in learning, a man of thought, rather than of action. You, to take an analogy from nature, you could say that uh, Echolampadius was kind of like the warm, bright, uh, mellow sun rising in the east on a nice morning. And uh, Farrell was more like the thunder and lightning on a, on a stormy night. Two, two very different personalities, but they actually complemented one another very well. Echolampadius began bearing his soul uh, some of his pastoral concerns and burdens to the fiery Pharaoh. Uh, he complained of the little fruit 
that he had in his ministry, preaching and preaching and preaching, and yet it didn't seem to be producing the evangelical fruit that he had hoped for. Uh, Alas, he said to Pharaoh, alas, I speak in vain and see not the least reason to hope, and I lay on myself the blame alone. Pharaoh was a great encouragement. He had an invincible faith. He was was, uh, a giant in the faith. He truly was. He had that apostolic kind of zeal, uh, missionary spirit of the Apostle Paul. And uh, he, he rarely seemed, at least in public, to get down. The word of God is all sufficient. This is what he reminded his friend Echolampadius. Remember, this was the, mo, the motto in the evangelical circle of Mo. The word of God is all sufficient. As if to say, Echolampadius, it's it, Johan. He would have called him by his first name, Johan. It's not, it's not your voice. It's the voice of the Son of God that raises the dead. So trust in him. It's his work. You are his instrument, but he is the true worker. Dabinier, another great uh, historian of the Reformation, said, The more Echolampadius saw a feral, the more his heart was cheered, and the courage he received from him became the groundwork of undying affection. So you have these two friendships now. You have Echolampadius, and on either side of him, you have the humanist Erasmus, very good friends, and then you have Farrell, the evangelist, very good friends. But on either side of him, as I said, these two men, Farrell and uh, Erasmus, were about to meet now through the instrumentality of Echolampadius. And deep and great enmity was discovered between those two on either side of him. It's, it's fascinating. And it's not just because Farrell had this big, long beard and, and Erasmus was clean-shaven. That wasn't the root of the enmity. It, It essentially was that Erasmus was devoted to the idea of peace at any price. He he really was a man who was obsessed with the idea of peace, no matter what, no matter what it costs. When Luther first appeared to the world in 1517, after the 95 Theses, Erasmus praised him to the hilt. What a great man, what a great man. But as Augsburg led to Leipzig and Leipzig led to Worms, and the, the matter of things became increasingly hostile, uh, Erasmus became increasingly irked with Luther, that here was a man that seemed to be willing for the whole world to be set ablaze and to be ignited, uh, if only the truth could prevail. He, this is what he didn't like about Luther, that Luther's estimation of the truth was so great that he was willing to let everything else fall by the wayside and be destroyed. To Erasmus, this was just so unpalatable. I, for my part, this is what Erasmus says, I, for my part, would prefer to be deceived in a good many things rather than to fight for the truth in so great a universal tumult. It's an amazing admission. I I can hardly believe that, that he would say that, but he did. He said that very thing. Well, now he meets Pharaoh with Echolampadius. And Pharaoh was of a stamp with Luther. They were men of kindred spirits. This is what Erasmus now says about I have never met with anything more false, more violent, and more seditious than this man. Because wherever he went, there were divisions. This is what happens with the gospel, you understand, when you're in the world. The gospel divides the light from the darkness. And then the gospel, which is the light, is blamed for being divisive and schismatic. Well, this is how Erasmus saw it. I might add, it doesn't help that Farrell did have a very abrasive personality. 
uh, and that's what the that, that's what the the champions of error can lock onto. You know, they can they can lock on that particular extreme part of the personality and even sin oftentimes and say, see, that's that's the problem right there. And uh, it's easy pickings for them because there's sin in all of us. So uh, it, it's a disadvantage that uh, the side of truth has over against the side of error. And yet the side of truth has the infinite, infallible, eternal God on its side. So in the end, uh, we're, we shouldn't be overly concerned about these things, although it's very, very frustrating. Very, very frustrating to the flesh. Well, this is what now Erasmus wrote to his very good young friend, Melanchthon. Melanchthon also was a lover of peace and, and retreated from any sign of, of uh, contention, even though Melanchthon was truly an evangelical in a way that Erasmus, as, as we were discovering this morning, was not. He had similarities with the evangelicals, but he was not of, of the mold of them. Uh, Melanchthon was. But in, in any case, Erasmus writes to, to Melanchthon at this time, uh, referring to Farrell and his, his impetuosity. He says, Shall we reject pontiffs and bishops just to have more cruel, scurvy, and furious tyrants in their place? For such it is that France has sent us. So, so Erasmus was getting a little jealous for his little home base, so peaceable and, and uh, elite, if you will. In Basel, you had, you had not only Farrell, but with him this horde of French evangelical refugees who, as Erasmus said, uh, always have five expressions in their mouths. Gospel, Word of God, Faith. Christ, Holy Ghost. He's saying this in a derogatory way. They've got all this new lingo that they're speaking. And they're the rabble. He says, I doubt whether they not be not urged on by the spirit of Satan. Well, the irony of all this is that those words are words that his own Greek New Testament had been putting into their mouths. So, uh, it's, it's quite an irony. I mean, he was the one, in a very true sense of the word, that was responsible for the igniting of the world. Uh, it was his text that these men were using. Well, coincidentally, in a sense, at the same time, speaking of the Greek New Testament by Erasmus, at the same time, while all this was going on, we want to look at Tyndale, just for a moment. Tyndale, at this time, in the spring of 1524, while all this was going on in Basel, was fleeing England, never to return, with Erasmus's text in his hand, and his already begun manuscripts of an English New Testament, and went to Germany. He was all over the place. His, he, 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 he was an outlaw. He was being hunted all of this time. Uh, he was in Cologne. He was most likely in Hamburg and Wittenberg, uh, Antwerp eventually. Um, he was all over the place. His enemies looking for them, hunting him continually, saying... Now, here's a man who's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. We can't find him, and he always seems to be moving and shifting. Well, this, the story of Tyndale's great, and it's unfortunate we won't, won't really spend too much time with him. But we just want to mention, uh, seeing that his New Testament was, was published and came streaming back over the channel, upwards of 6,000 copies, smuggled in, in, in bundles and bags of flour. You probably know the story. Uh, and then dispersed through the English countryside to, to the masses of English-speaking men and women and boys and girls 
right into the hands of the English people. Well, the Bishop of London, uh, from whom Tyndale had fled, Cuthbert Tunstall was his name, he, he called this testament a, a pestiferous and pernicious poison. He said there, there were some 2,000 errors in this New Testament, and it had to be stamped out. Well, close to 400 of those 2,000 errors that, that Tunstall accused it of having can be summed up or found in these words, and they're in your handout there. And we just want to very briefly mention them. Metanoeo is the first word. We've already dealt with this word. This means repentance. Or in Jerome's Vulgate, remember, it was do penance. So it was that this word was at the heart, coming out of the Latin Vulgate, of the entire doctrine of penance. Doing penance. Well, Erasmus had rightly recognized that this is not to do penance as a technical part of the Roman sacramental system, but it was to repent. That is, there's an inward change that takes place. Otherwise, repentance, it's not repentance. As Luther had expressed it, Christ teaches a repentance in spirit and truth, not those outward penances that can be performed by the proudest sinners without humiliation. So you see the difference between the two. Tyndale maintained that difference, and it, and it, was, a, it was a huge hue of the axe to the trunk of the papal tree of their sacramental system, and the sacrament of penance in particular. Well, we come next to the word homologeo, which means to confess, or to profess, or to acknowledge. Well, The word confession had become virtually synonymous again. It became a technical word that was associated with the doctrine of penance. One of those three parts, contrition and, and uh, uh, confession and satisfaction. So because it had become, uh, this auricular confession had become such a technical part, Rome had used the word now, and now when any, anyone read their Bibles and saw the word to confess or confession, they immediately thought of the sacrament of penance and their duty to the priest in an outward way, auricular Confession, that is orally with the mouth. Well, Tyndale very deliberately changed this. Even though confess is not inaccurate to translate it this way, the word had been subject to so much abuse, had been redefined or more narrowly defined to the uses of the Roman Catholic Church because of their tradition, that Tyndale very, very self-consciously changed it to acknowledge that, that is the meaning of the word. You, you may confess openly to someone. You would be acknowledging your sins. But it also has to do with, say, confessing uh, the truth. In any case, you're boldly professing it. You're, you're homologeo. You're, you're confessing it. And so Tyndale, again, as I said, deliberately changed it to strip Rome of its power with regard to that word. It wasn't Rome's word. It was the word of God. And then the third word, agape. Well, we all know agape. Uh, it means love. Well, uh, it also means charity. That's the old word for it. And charity, of course, had become a technical part of almsgiving. It, it was almost synonymous with almsgiving. So it became an outward act. I do acts of charity. So anytime you saw the word agape, or in, in Jerome's translation, charity, you, you would say, oh, you know, this is something I have to do. It became an external work of that satisfaction that you were to render in order to gain absolution, again, of the sacrament of penance, rather than the inward affection rising up from the bottom of the heart 
which is the spring of all of the good works. Tyndale said, you can never come to this agape or this love or this inward affection. You can never come by it, but by, by thine own strength, but only by the operation and the working of the spirit. So again, Tyndale is self-consciously changing it from charity to love, to strip Rome of its power with regard to this word and its control in its sacramental system of this word. And then finally, ecclesia, which, which you probably know means church. Uh, congregation is an equally adequate and uh, accurate term. Well, this is what Tyndale did. He changed it from church to congregation. Not again that church is wrong, but church had become, again, a synonym for the Roman clergy, the popes, the, the magisterium, the pope and all the bishops in communion with him. So it became a technical term when people came across that word church in the Bible. They're not thinking if, there's, if he's a believer, if he goes to church every day and goes to mass and all this stuff. He's not thinking of himself as the church, but he's submitting to the church. You remember Zwingli's uh, opponents telling the people that were listening to Zwingli's preaching. They said, they said, let no one seduce you from the church. And by that they meant, let no one seduce you from your priest, from the bishops, from the cardinals, from the popes. Oh, well, again, this is entirely contrary to the, the Pauline spirit. Let no one seduce you from Christ. So, Tyndale rendered the word ecclesia, congregation, which, which means the entire body, worldwide, of every single believer, without distinction, all knit together in their head, Christ. So, by this single word, ecclesia being translated into church, little by little, it, of course, all of these things didn't happen at once, but little by little, Rome had, had assumed to itself uh, masterhood or mastership. They had become the masters of Christ's church rather than its servants. As clearly, when we read the New Testament, we understand ministers of the gospel to be the servants of Christ. He is the head. All right, so those are four words. You can see why Cuthbert Tunstall, the Bishop of London, uh, so jealous to maintain his own power, and the power of Rome had called it pestiferous and pernicious poison. So, Tyndale's New Testament, at this time, in the year 1526, with that, which Davigny calls the year of grace, it was the great year in England where the gospel just burst open its floodgates, and people began reading it, and it was an irrevocable movement forward for the gospel. Well, the, Tyn the Tyndale Testament was declared contraband, uh, to be burned, those discovered with it in their possession, their, their homes were searched. If it was found, they were arrested and in some cases actually burned. Tyndale himself said when he discovered what was going on, not in England, but he heard the news of what was going on in England across the channel. He said, in burning the New Testament, they did none other than I looked for. No more shall they do if they burn me also, which, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, happened. So that was a prophecy of Tyndale's. He was born in 1536 on October 6th. We just passed the anniversary of that a couple of weeks ago. But now, okay, leaving Tyndale, coming back to Basel at this time. This is what we're primarily interested in. Erasmus at this time, uh, you've already seen his, his enmity towards Farrell and towards Luther. Well, by this time, he had published a major polemic against Luther. Uh, he didn't want to do it because he didn't like enlisting himself in battle and in contention. He just didn't like it at all. But the Pope and uh, his minions were, were continually pressing Erasmus to do this. And he felt that uh, 
he had to, in a sense, maybe to make amends, maybe to make satisfaction, as it were, for his books like Praise of Folly and so forth that vehemently attacked the abuses, not the doctrines, but the abuses in the Catholic Church. So Erasmus finally, feet dragging and all, uh, published The Diatribe Concerning Free Will. The Diatribe Concerning Free Will. This appeared in September 1524. The Pope and the Emperor just piled congratulations on Erasmus, thought that his work was unanswerable. It was the final word. Well, it took a little over a year. The next year, in 1525, in December, fresh off the presses appeared Luther's rebuttal uh, to Erasmus's work on the bondage of the will. On the bondage of the will. This is, this is a great, great classic. Uh, well, Luther did not receive congratulations of the Pope, uh, nor of the Emperor, but a gr- wonderful modern historian of the Reformation, Gordon Rupp, called this work on the bondage of the will the finest and most powerful soli deo gloria. There's that fifth sola. The finest and most powerful glory to God alone to be sung in the whole period of the Reformation. It's a wonderful work. If you haven't read it, I I, I strongly recommend it, along with with, uh, an easier and shorter work, Freedom of a Christian, which I've mentioned before is one of Luther's early tracts. Two wonderful works. Most excellent. Well, Erasmus begins his work, and we're going to treat this, even though one work was written, and then the second work was written in answer to it, there, you can synthesize the two and, and hear, as it were, this argument going on between the two over the doctrine of free will and the sovereignty of God uh, in our salvation. And so I'm, I'm treating this as a debate between the two, even though, properly speaking, they were two separate works, but the net effect of them, when you had both in your hand, is this lively debate. So Luther, I'm sorry, Erasmus begins by asserting the power of the human will. Asserting the power of the human will. Uh, totally congenial to the natural mind. And he was asserting this against Luther's Augustinian doctrine of the inability of the human will. So human inability versus human power and freedom in reference to the will of man. Now, I said the Augustinian doctrine, and that's important. The word Augustinian is important. You remember, I'm sure, at least in bits and pieces, the Pelagian controversy of the 5th century. I think we touched on that maybe a few weeks ago, just barely. The Pelagian controversy of the 5th century. Well, Pelagius had asserted, well, in the first place, he denied the the uh, guilt and the corruption of original sin. He denied that, and then, in a positive way, he had asserted man's natural capacity to do, to will, even, to will and to do all that God commands, and thereby to merit salvation. Grace was not necessary in Pelagius' scheme. God would never command us anything that we were not able to perform. So, therefore, strictly speaking, we didn't need God's grace to do what he commanded, and if we do what he commands, then we merit the salvation that he offers to those that obey his command. That was Pelagius's position. Augustine, on the other hand, had said that man's natural capacity since the fall is only capable of sin. The will can only sin in its natural state. Before the strict justice of God, said Augustine, there's, there's, there's actually no shred of human merit whatsoever if you're looking at the justice of God strictly. And now you, 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 you're probably remembering Luther's state of mind and soul 
in the struggles that he was going at, discovering no human merit at all, no matter how hard he tried. The whole human race, said Augustine back in the 5th century, the whole human race was condemned in its apostate root. Grace alone separates the redeemed from the lost. Well, this is a scandal to the natural mind. It was a scandal to the mind of Erasmus, ran counter to his best instincts, to his own hard-fought virtue, which he wanted to maintain. He just didn't want to lose it all and give it up. And yet that's what grace requires, for us to give up every shred of our hard-fought virtue. You remember Calvin's statement, there is nothing men are more unwilling to do than to bid farewell to their own labors and to give God's works their rightful place. Well, this was Erasmus' state of mind. He wanted to stand somewhere between Pelagius and Augustine. So he denied the full Pelagian view on the one hand that man can fulfill the law apart from grace, but then on the other hand, Augustine is being too harsh. Augustine is too harsh. They go too far, says Erasmus, who affirm that the will in itself can only commit sin. He just thought this was an extremist view. The safest ground, he thought, was the ground of the schoolmen. God accepts the acts of one who does what is in him so he can be given the first grace. So, as the saying went, the carry quote in say est, do what in you lies. Well, for Luther, this counsel, as, as he said, uh, was as cold and chilly as ice for the soul that's a thirst and a hungering for true righteousness. To be told, do what in you lies when you're realizing your nakedness and, and your inability your poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, to be told, just, just do what you can. You, you realize it, you're, you're rife. You're riddled with sin. The motives, even in the good things that you try to do and think, are carrying with them sinfulness that you know is condemned before the majesty of God. So this is what Luther says. A man who does what in him lies only piles one sin upon another. Stop talking rot and let us look at life as we experience it. Let any man do what is in him when he is angry or when he is exasperated or when he is tempted. Do what in you lies and do not lust, but you cannot. Therefore, these are all figments of which we speak and we are all alike in this matter. So he thanks Erasmus for the crucial point, for raising this crucial point. You alone, Erasmus, have attacked the essential issue. You have not wearied me with those extraneous issues about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences and such like. You alone have seen the hinge on which all turns and aimed for the vital spot. Well, the vital spot, the hinge on which all turns, is simply God's free, unmerited, sovereign grace alone. Sola gratia. That was the hinge. And Erasmus was attacking it. And now Luther was, was set in arms to defend it. God hath concluded all in unbelief. This is the text we read out of Romans. This is the point. God hath concluded all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Well, the principle at stake here between Erasmus and Luther in the 16th century is the same as the issue between Pelagius and Augustine in the 5th century, just with this one difference. The principle is the same, but there is this small difference. Pelagius had asserted the ability to merit salvation without grace, whereas Erasmus now is asserting the ability to merit grace without grace. You see, it's, 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 just, a, it's just one more ladder up, or one more rung up or down, whichever way you want to go, of the ladder. He's, Erasmus is saying we can merit grace without grace. In either case, in both cases, the ultimate determination, 
The ultimate determination of the soul's destiny is rooted not in the electing grace of God's love, but in the laboring bosom of fallen man. So Erasmus's position, you could say, is a position that we would call semi-Pelagianism. Uh, or, as it would come to be known in the next century, uh, Arminianism. It's exactly the same thing. Well, Erasmus was not willing to make such a stark admission that, oh, I'm not talking about the laboring bosom of fallen man at all. I'm just talking about a basic freedom of the will to choose what is good. So Erasmus now begins to plead a kind of ignorance, pious and humble ignorance. We can't, we can't know. Scripture is too unclear in these things, Erasmus says. We've heard these kind of arguments before. It's a dark and mysterious cavern. And so we must let these mysteries be. Just let them be. Don't pry into them. Luther replies, a wonderful reply. He says, this is weak stuff, Erasmus. Salvation is notoriously incompatible with such ignorance, yet you take pains to engender it. You forbid us to examine the limits of our ability, and you assure us that this folly is the loveliest Christian piety. But if I am ignorant of what I can and must do toward God, I shall be equally ignorant of what God can and will do in me. And where these are not known, that is, what God can do and will do in me, where these are not known, there can be no faith nor any worship of God. Therefore, if we would live a godly life that is fundamentally necessary and wholesome for us to know that God purposes and does all things according to his own immutable, eternal, and infallible will. Well, Erasmus becomes morally indignant at this kind of claim that God, you're saying just everything is predestined and we have no power whatsoever. We can't do any of these things. That's, that's the extreme to which Erasmus jumps then. He says, what a floodgate of iniquity would such news open to people if they heard this kind of thing, that God orders all things according to his own counsel. What use is there of publishing such things when so many harmful results are likely to follow? So, okay, it may or may not be true, but don't say it to the people. If they get a hold of something like this, then just imagine what's going to go on. Well, Luther's not interested in protecting men from the all-terrible as Luther saw him. He doesn't want to protect men from what the Bible reveals about God, or I should say what God reveals about himself in the Bible, but in how, being all terrible, God is infinitely pregnant, as it were, with infinite grace, free grace, full of it. That's what Luther's interested in. God has promised his grace, says Luther. God has promised his grace to the humble. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled until he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own works and depends absolutely on the will and the work of another. God alone, such a man as this, is very near to grace. For God, and this is one of the greatest statements Luther ever made, in my opinion. For God could not fail at once to pity the wretchedness that knew itself and cried to him who is proclaimed with mighty praise, throughout all Scripture as being near to the brokenhearted. Tremendous statement. Well, Erasmus was not moved so greatly as Luther was by statements like this. Uh, if salvation is beyond our own works, he said, then why does God command at all? Why the commands if we're not able? Surely we must conclude that we are able, therefore. No, says Luther. God, by his law, brings us to a knowledge of our impotence, the diatribe, that is the, the work that Erasmus published, the diatribe dreams that man is whole and, and led captive and furthermore as proudly disdaining to notice 
Therefore, it commands in order to rouse him that he may know by sure experience how unable he is. Paul's words, all the world is guilty. There is none righteous. These words are awful thunderclaps. They break in pieces not only all that is in one man, but all that is in the whole world. Well, again, Erasmus is relatively unmoved. To the very end, he's hoping for something, something, anything in the creature that you can call merit. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. To what will it be ascribed then, says Erasmus, if man is justified without merit? He still just doesn't get free grace. He can't comprehend it, and therefore he can't allow it. An election of pure grace, which is the doctrine of the New Testament. Well, Luther can only recall him as he concludes to the divine sentence in Romans 9. And Luther quotes it now. He hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardens. Word for word. The words of God. And to this, Luther says, there's only one proper response. And we'll end with this. To revere, this is the proper response. To revere the majesty of God's power and will, against which we have no rights, but which has full rights against us to do what it pleases. He has received nothing from us, and he has promised us nothing but what he pleased and willed. And the whole New Testament is bursting with what God has pleased and will to give us freely in Jesus Christ. So this is the time, says Luther, and this is the place to adore the true majesty in its awful, wondrous, incomprehensible judgments and say, Thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Well, that's the debate. And uh, I think it's wonderful. I, I strongly recommend uh, Luther's book to you. Next week, we're going to look at the meeting, the clash, we could say, between Luther and Zwingli. Uh, in Marburg. So that's what we have to look forward to next week. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these great things of Jesus Christ as we see them being worked out in this world. Bless us in this hour to come. Bless your word. May it come to us with sweetness and with power. In Jesus' name, amen.